Welcome to the Gifted Life Podcast, where we have conversations about organ, tissue, and eye donation. I'm Joey Boudreaux. Well, hi, Joey. I'm Sally Gentry. Hey, Sally. We're going to kick this off without Lori today. Yes, we are. Well, this is episode 79 of the Gifted Life Podcast. Wow. Can you imagine? It's amazing. We're in our third year now, and they haven't yeah. kicked you and I off yet. That's right. Well, guys, we're <laughs> at the end of National Kidney Month, where we've had quite a bit of fundraisers here in Louisiana. We've had the March Mad Dash in Thibodeau and in Nationwide. We've had a ton between golf tournaments and, and walks and mm-hmm. runs, all bringing about awareness to kidney health, kidney disease, and, and of course, those who are on the waiting list for a life-saving kidney. And Joey, you know, what a perfect way to let everyone know about Donor Awareness Month, which is in April. A lot of events featuring a lot of different donor families, recipients. And, you know, I think along with this, uh, when you were talking about National Kidney Month, the number of people we heard from in family services that, you know, one to write, thank their donor families for their new kidney or kidneys. So obviously people are listening and they want to help. And boy, is it a great thing, huh? Yep. March and April is so busy for us, but such a busy time in a great way. Absolutely. Well, Sally, as we've done in many other episodes, we've highlighted other OPOs, organ procurement organizations, throughout the nation. Mm -hmm. This time, we're highlighting the Gift of Life Philadelphia, which is one of the oldest and one of the largest organ recovery agencies, organ procurement organizations in the entire country. Oh, that's wonderful. They do so many innovative things. That's right. And one of the innovating things we're going to find out about is the Gift of Life Family House. And... I'm also going to talk about getting anxious. Yeah, <laughs> like I am very often, Sally. And as we do in every episode, we'll be honoring a hero. And of course, we'll have our question and answer segment. Mm-hmm. But as always, you guys know how to find us. We're easy to find nowadays. That's if right. you've got any podcast app, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or whatever your favorite podcast app might be, you can certainly find us. You can find us on social media. Like us on Facebook, our Donate Life Louisiana page, and you can follow us both on Twitter and Instagram at Donate Life LA. And don't forget, Joey, you can always give us a call. And that number is 504-648-3477. We might even play your message. And we also would just like for you to call us and let us know how you think we're doing. That's right. We want to hear from you. Ready to go? Yeah. Let's do it. Okay. In 2017, Donate Life America presented the Nicholas Green Award for a Lifetime of Giving to Howard M. Nathan, President and CEO, Gift of Life Donor Program in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Sally, we are fortunate to have one of the icons in the industry, someone I've seen many, many times give presentations at AOPO and and different conferences, Mr. Howard Nathan. How are you, Howard? I'm great. Thanks for calling. I appreciate it. Howard's been in the industry for 40 years. This is his 40th anniversary here in 2018. That's wonderful. He started in 1978 as a transplant coordinator. In 1984, he became the president and CEO of Gift of Life there in Philadelphia. 
coincidentally, that's the same year of NOTA, uh, National Organ Transplant Act. So, Howard, you guys have been at the forefront in innovation in, in the amount of lives that are saved. In fact, you know, you guys this year have had the most lives saved. What have you guys done throughout history to see such successes? Well, when I joined the program, there were only three people at the program in 1978. The program was organized by five transplant surgeons from five different hospitals. So it actually started out as a regional OPO as we know it today. The people that were there, uh, they weren't medically trained, actually, but they learned the medicine of kidney transplants. And so the first person who was a coordinator uh, was a guy named Don Denny, who was a social worker. So the, the surgeons thought, well, they needed someone to talk to families. And the second person was a former priest who was in, in training, uh, who was also in pre-med. And then there was me. Uh, and I was a research biologist. So, you know, it was interesting background, but, you know, they always took an academic approach, meaning training and teaching was very important. And it was important to me because I was a research biologist at one time uh, before that. And the idea was we were really out in the community with this new thing called transplantation trying to teach the public, trying to teach hospitals, well, you know, this is important. This is going to save lives. And so I always saw myself as a teacher. Some of the things that happened was that, yes, I, I did become the CEO, but one of the things I was very careful about is to make sure that I picked good people. For example, uh, one of my sec secretaries just retired uh, a couple years ago. It was ha actually, she was there 40 years. That's fantastic. You know, some of the team we have now, like Rick Hawes, who's been there 25 years, and Gwen O'Shaughnessy, 20 years. So th there's people that really believe in the mission, and, um, and they themselves see themselves as teachers and mentors, and I think that has a lot to do with our success. Wow, outstanding commitment on everyone's yeah. part. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of history, you know, Joey started out by talking about NOTA in 1984, and that happened to be the, the, you know, the year I took over. So a lot changed you know, in 1984, not just because of NOTA and not because of the forming of UNOS. Um, you know, the United Network for Organ Sharing took over the contract in 1987. But transplantation changed. Because in 1983, cyclosporin was approved by the FDA, and you know transplants were not terribly successful prior to cyclosporin. Maybe in, when I grew up, it was maybe a 50/50 chance of graft survival, and then you know that changed everything when there was new medications. Then the graft survival was 85 percent, and now it's 93, 95 percent. So the medicines, too, and the technology uh, has changed. That has increased the success. So we go from a time period of, you know, in the 80s, as he's mentioning, where it was more experimental, you know, especially with the medications and with the surgeries, with the techniques, to a time now, obviously, everything is so much more fine-tuned. And again, you know, you guys have been still at the forefront of the innovation. In 2002, it's where I started 
and we started finding out about you guys because of Gift of Life Institute shortly thereafter. What are some of the things that you've done in the more recent past that you saw were maybe still gaps uh, in the industry and that you saw, okay, this is a need and, and these are areas that we'd like to address? So one of the major things that changed organ donation uh, happened in 1994. We had a governor who actually received a liver and a heart transplant, which was, you know, pretty well publicized and actually a little controversial because he was only on the list for a double organ for less than a week. And that happened at Pittsburgh, not in, in my part of the state. But he came back. His name was Governor Casey. He came back to work about six months later. And someone in the meantime had put in presumed consent legislation, which the public really wasn't ready for. But we then took that interest, and certainly the governor's interest, and did uh, a major law change that I think affected the whole country eventually, which was, was routine referral of all deaths in a hospital. And what that did was open the funnel so that we didn't miss uh, organ donors, because those days the physicians in the hospitals often determined who was suitable and when to call and all that. This mandated that they call at or near the time of every death. So not only did it increase organ donation 43% in our region in three years, when everybody else was around under 2% increases. That's incredible. But it also increased tissue donation by about 300% because we heard about every death, which we had never heard about before unless the hospitals asked for corneas or they didn't even know what tissue was in, in those days. So it changed everything. And in 1998, the federal government adopted it as a condition of participation for every hospital in the country. And I think this is one of the key things that changed donation in our country. And then we saw some tremendous increases in the mid-2000s from a collaborative uh, in particular that everybody shared best practices. And some of the things that you know we were doing had to do with how we obtained consent, and we had a system for that. We also started doing DCDs, donation after circulatory death, in 1995, that changed for us uh, the ability to be able to take organs from someone who wanted to stop the ventilator uh, before they were brain dead. And it was a 14-year-old boy. I can remember the case. Sue McVeigh Dillon was the mom, and she said, I just wanted to be a donor. You know, I don't understand what you're, you know, about brain death or what that means. But as far as I'm concerned, he's died, and I want him to donate his organs. And for us, philosophically, that changed the way we offer things to families, and I think we began to teach and train people about how that can work. And now, you know, of course, there's over almost 2,000 donation after circulatory death donor a year in the United States. So those are some major things that I remember that changed, uh, you know, not just our donation rate, but right. the, the rest of the country. You were instrumental in this change and you guys there in Pennsylvania. My first introduction to LOPA here in Louisiana was in 1998 as, a, as an ER nurse, and it came from that conditions of participation. And then 
you know, of course, like you said, it, it just you've seen a huge increase. And then later with the collaborative with donor hospitals, transplant centers and OPOs all getting together to see how we can close some gaps. And so when I started, everything, you know, as far as education uh, stemmed from a see one, do one, teach one approach. And then we did everything back then. We were coordinators, did, you know, hospital development, a little bit of family care, community, you know, and, and, and of course, the coordinating part. And you saw this as an opportunity to create more systemic changes with the Gift of Life Institute. You were the founder, am I correct? Yes. I've always taken an academic approach to teaching and training people. Um, as far back as 1982, I was one of the founders of the NATCO training course. And I believe that uh, you know the, the see one, do one, teach one doesn't necessarily work. You've really got to systematically look at how we approach families, how we educate physicians and nurses about the donation process. Um, so we've always taken this approach to make sure that we just don't shove people out in the field after, you know, two days of training. Um, and the idea was is to create a foundation that could house an institute so that we could have training for not only this country, but we've trained people from 33 countries, and I've traveled to you know, probably uh, about 25 countries to teach and train some of these techniques that we're talking about. So how to approach families um, in, in a better way to make sure that they understand it, um, some simple things about those conversations that, that we started here. Families have to understand that their loved one actually is dead um, or, you know, is, is definitely not going to survive before they're going to give consent. Of course, now part of the law that we passed in 1994 was the driver's license law that uh, we were one of the first states to have it on the driver's license. Now we know that more than half the public has it on their driver's license. And that actually changes the process, not just from consent, because the person already gave the consent by virtue of having it on their license, but now we're informing the families. But even that technique has to be done in a very sensitive and caring way. I think the other part is making sure that people all over the world understand that the U.S. really does have the best system. Um, you know, we have 58 really good agencies. We call them OPOs. And, you know, we have staffing that are professional staffing people that in all aspects of the process, they're not transplant surgeons like they are in many countries who are then, you know, told that, oh, you have to go out and help with the donation process. That's the way it was in the U.S. 50 years ago. So some of the things that we try to teach is how to develop um, a system and how to develop an agency, if you will, that has all the right people doing all the right things. And uh, particularly, your main client is hospitals. It's not necessarily the general public. It's really the hospitals. You know, there's an old saying, Willie Hutton, I think it was his name, the bank robber said, well, why do you rob banks? Well, that's where the money is. Yeah, that that's right. <laughs> well, why do we focus on hospital education? And why do we focus on making sure residents understand brain death? 
Well, that's where the donors are. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very, you know, it's very much uh, difficult to educate 300 million people in the United States. But when you focus on the intensive care unit, the critical care units of a hospital, particularly the major hospitals, you can then focus you know, your time and, and your people in the places that's going to give you the best results. And it sounds like a simple business practice in some respect. People talk about 80-20 in business that, you know, 80% of your uh, business, in our case, donors, are in 20% of your hospitals, and it really rings true. So where do you spend your time? You spend your time developing those relationships, making sure that people are uh, mentored and they understand that we're caring and sensitive people, but we want to basically work together to approach families so they say yes. So as you're talking about donation and how you have uh, educated individuals over time about this, how did this kind of evolve then to the Gift of Life Family House for recipients? You know, I have been here in Philadelphia at Gift of Life since 1978. Um, I had an older sister named Martha who um, had liver disease. Uh, You know, they called it non-A, non-B hepatitis. Mm-hmm. This was in the basically in the mid '80s, and she was in and out of the hospital a lot. And you know, liver transplants weren't being done other than in Pittsburgh um, until the mid '80s. In Philadelphia, we didn't do one until 1984. And I, you know, my sister was really dwindling away from what's called PBC, primary biliary cirrhosis, from a you know sort of an unknown cause. Anyhow. We started doing transplants here, and I referred her to one of my colleague surgeon friends, and she got evaluated, and she waited about two and a half years because she was a B blood type till hmm. a suitable liver became available, and uh, she got transplanted in 1991. And so my mother uh, came, of course, to be with my sister in the hospital. Uh, she was in the waiting room, and I happened to be at a at a AOPO meeting in Arizona. I had to fly back that day. My sister was already in surgery when I got there, and my mom was there. And then another family from the middle of the state, Hershey, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. uh, a young woman with two little kids came, and she was saying to my mom, look, uh, you know, my husband is going to get a liver transplant. You know, we've never been to Philadelphia before. Where are you staying? Ah. And she said, oh, well, I'm staying with my son. He's over there, blah, blah, blah. And the reality is, is that moment, it struck me that, yeah, on the donation side, we do the right thing. We get organs for people. But there's this whole other side of transplantation that people in the organ procurement field don't really know about. Unless they experienced it. And I here I was on the other side, and here's this woman with two little kids who doesn't know where she's going to stay tonight. Yeah. And they told her their husband's going to be in the hospital in those days, two to three months after a liver transplant. This was 1991. So it struck me that we had to do something, um, and it took me 20 years, uh, but I finally got a foundation formed, and I raised money to build this sort of Ronald McDonald House Uh type of thing. We call it Gift of Life Family House. Actually, initial name was Howie's House. 
but they that got changed. <laughs> and um, it's a place, there's 30 rooms. It's a place where families who come from out of town, because now we have, just in Philadelphia, we have nine transplant centers. And uh, people come from all over the country, particularly for lung and heart transplants. Mm-hmm. And it's a place for their families to stay while they're going through the process or the patients themselves can stay there. And it's unbelievable. It's uh, We built it and it opened in 2011. And last year, it was so full that 158 nights, we had to turn people away. My goodness. All 30 rooms were taken. Wow. So it's really benefited not only the patients and families, but frankly, it's benefited the transplant centers here in, in our region because they have a place that they can say, well, if you want to come from, we have a woman here from North Dakota for a lung transplant. She's been there since May, mm-hmm. last May, you know, waiting for the right uh, donor. And so it helps everybody in society, I think. The cool thing is every night at 6 p.m., we have a thing called Home Cook Heroes. And what that is is people from the public, whether it's churches or businesses or the intensive care of hospitals, people come in and cook a home-cooked meal for the oh, 50 neat. or 60 people staying at the house. That's and neat. It, it really shows them what transplantation is about if they've had no contact with people who've had transplants. So there's more education going on. Correct. Yeah. Always the key is education. Uh-huh. And um, people, you know, are so proud of doing this to, to help other people. You know, we, all in all, we really have a great country and, you know, we're very proud of our region. But people do want to help each other. That's what organ donation is about. Uh-huh. And so this is just another aspect of that that people really want to help each other, and this isn't you know, something that they can see tangible. They're actually serving people meals and sitting and breaking bread with people mm-hmm. who are waiting for a transplant or who had a transplant. So they learn, and they go back out to the community. And now Home Cook Heroes, you have to book three months ahead of time oh, to book a meal for your wow. group because it's so so busy. That's so great. We're, we're quite proud of that. Yes, indeed. So, Howard, you guys obviously have done so much in so many different areas in donation. It's so great hearing you. You know, you've always, you're always one step ahead, I guess, thinking about the next thing, what's on the horizon, how can we impact this area and this area? What are the initiatives that you guys at Gift of Life have going on right now? In the early days, I was, you know, president of AOPO, you know, treasurer of UNOS, I was president of Donate Life America. You know, all those things that you do in your career to, you know, leadership positions that you want to, that you really learn from, but you also develop relationships with people. And um, those things taught me a lot to always think ahead, to think about what's next. And so one of the things that we partnered with a, a transplant surgeon, he started a thing called the Transplant Registry. And what it is is, uh, a red, it's a pregnancy registry that um, nobody really knew in the early days what the medications did to uh, patients and what would happen if they had offspring. So for the past 25 years, this pregnancy registry started by Vince Armenti uh, in 1990s 
has been in place, and people self-report their pregnancies. Either they fought her their pregnancy, uh, they had a pregnancy and had a baby, or they had an unsuccessful pregnancy. And now there's about 3,000 people. The registry has published over 300 papers. And it's a resource for patients to see, you know, what happens after transplant and whether they can get pregnant or are they on medications that might harm the child. So that's mm -hmm. a cool thing. And I, uh, I'm really proud that uh, we're part of that. Um, so that's a research project. I've always been research-oriented, and uh, we're really proud of the team that does that. Um, I think, uh, you know, we've done a lot of different cutting-edge things. So, you know, the whole issue with hepatitis C kidneys getting discarded because we were basically running out of people who had hep C uh, who could take those organs, uh, particularly kidneys. And, uh, you know, our partners at Penn wanted to do this experiment to take hep C kidneys and put them in non-hep C recipients and then treat them with the new medications, these miracle drugs that cure hep C. So we're up to about 40 hep C kidneys that have been transplanted. We're beginning to do lungs um, and, and hearts, and we've sent uh, organs actually up to Toronto, Canada, who's doing the same thing. And that's, a, you know, that's now started in many centers across the country. We've done three hand transplants, three double hand transplants, including the only pediatric uh, transplant. The question was, would donors, families donate hands, or in some cases, faces, so that could people mm. in New England, uh, in Boston do. And families are willing to help people. You know, they once they make that decision to donate, they want to donate. And so we've done uh, that in partnership with uh, Children's Hospital here in Penn. Um, so that, that, that makes us proud to be able to save lives. And I, th I think all of us together, you and your people at LOPA who are doing a fabulous job, um, you've got to be emotionally connected to what we do or you can't do it because it's a tiring, exhausting job, not just the 24-7 call, but the emotions that you go through with families or you know the, the struggles that you deal with with transplant surgeons themselves or with the critical care physician who doesn't want to work with you because, you know, he had a bad experience 20 years ago. You know, there's all those different emotions that drive people of why they do what they do. And I think what I'm most proud of in our field is that we have so many dedicated people. You know, there are now thousands of people who are doing this work. You know, when I was doing it in the 70s, I, I would say, oh, man, I'm like one in a million people who do this job. Well, that's not the yeah, case that's anymore. Right. And, and it, you know, your your wins, you remember. You know, I'll, I'll just tell you a short story. Um, there's this little boy who was born on Valentine's Day, as his mom says. Uh, this was uh, 21 years ago. And seven months later, we got him. You know, he was born on Valentine's Day with a broken heart, is what his mom would say. Mm. Seven months later, we got him a baby heart. He was seven months old. He's now a junior in college. I saw him a couple of weeks ago. I mean, you can't you yeah. can't write that script. You know, that's that's real stuff. Yeah. And um, 
impact. You know, we have, uh, as I talked about, the woman who's was our first DCD donor, uh, you know, the mother of, of Michael, 14 years old. She wanted him to be a donor. And then we then went out and taught people about these DCD donation. And, you know, now there's over 2,000 cases a year, um, almost, you know, three to 4,000 transplants a year. So uh, it's those types of things that keep you going and you remember um, of why you do what you do. And now, you know, now I'm not directly involved day-to-day -day with clinical operations. Rick Haas is really the one who runs that. But, you know, those, those stories that I hear from my staff and the team, you know, that keeps you going. Well, Howard, thank you so much and you guys uh, at Gift of Life for doing everything that you've done because it, it's truly impacted more lives than anyone can honestly put a finger on. So thank you very much, and yes. uh, we enjoyed the talk. Thanks, Joey. Thanks, Sally. I appreciate it. As you may have heard in previous episodes, we've talked about some mental health issues. We've talked about suicide. Uh, we've talked about grief during the holiday seasons. And we want to make this a more regular part of our podcast. And Sally, you know, mental health, obviously, and you know, is not something that everyone talks about. Uh, very yeah. recently, right. it's been a big topic of conversation in the sports world. A couple different athletes who are internationally known have come out with different types of mental illness and they've done so so that others realize that they're not alone mm -hmm. you know so we want to make it like i said a regular part of our podcast and why not since we've got a mental health professional here with us miss sally gentry wow that's great <laughs> thanks joey i do want to share with you my credentials so that way you know that that i truly am a mental health professional yes she is uh, i'm a licensed professional counselor uh, I also hold fellow status in the American uh, Psychotherapy Association, and I'm board-certified professional counselor. And I've been doing this for around 30 years now. So uh, I've got a little bit of experience plus life experience, and this all leads to anxiety. Do you ever get anxious, Joey? <laughs> I get anxious all the time, Sally. <laughs> I think what we— What do I do about it? I know, I, and I think we all do, and a lot of times— we kind of let it get out of control, though, uh, sometimes. And I know you know folks. Uh, I know folks. Even I've done it myself that, oh, my gosh, everything is a catastrophe. It's never going to get better. Or we have this all or nothing sort of thinking. We tend to give other people credit for reading our minds and, and oh, my gosh, they know what I'm thinking. And uh, now, oh, I'm, I know she thinks this about me or Things like that, that that we have a tendency to do, uh, we overgeneralize. And I think all that just kind of stems from, you know, we're getting caught up in the moment. And the thing that I find very interesting is now that we have people coming forward that would never before have talked about this, because many, many families have individuals who do have a mental illness and sometimes much more intense than just anxiety. It gets then into depression and much more difficult things in life. And some of the things you see, um, you know, in behavior, 
you know, you tend to be a little bit more irritable. Uh, you're a little bit more jumpy than usual because that anxiety is just really driving you. Um, sometimes excessive worry. You ever wake up at three o'clock and go, oh my gosh, I forgot to do this. Or, oh, what if I don't finish that? Nightly, what if? That's a nightly basis. There I think. you go. A lot of what ifs or yeah. should haves or could haves or, or, or I must or I need. A lot of that goes on. Also, one of the things I think that really concerns people is kind of a sense of impending doom at any moment. It's just the sky's going to fall. Uh, something horrible is going to happen. And then I think, too, then physically, you, you end up fatigued. You kind of feel like, you know, you're just you're kind of restless, but at the same time, you just can't get yourself going. These symptoms um, do include stress. And, and the way out of this is to, to take a few moments, to take a step back, and if you are able to, and just go to someplace quiet, even if it's just for a few moments, and talk to yourself in a positive manner. I think that the positive thoughts can create a much more positive experience of life. Because if you're focusing in on, oh my gosh, I'm so anxious, what am I going to do? It's just all the wrong thing then there's that tendency to perpetuate itself to go on and on and on. But those few moments of quiet time, some deep breathing, I, I know that all sounds so, you know, kind of superficial, but it's amazing how those deep breaths can really help, you know, physiologically. Right. And, and, you know, you can probably explain that much better than I can, yeah. help relieve some of that anxiety. And remember, folks, you know, overthinking can really ruin your ability for happiness. Sometimes a situation just is what the situation is. And we don't have to try to turn it into something that it's not. So when you get anxious, take a step back, do a few deep breaths, and think about the positive things to tell yourself that can be very helpful for you to relieve some of that anxiety. That's a lot of great information on how to treat yourself for anxiety. Mm -hmm. Is there any point where they should seek medical attention? Oh, absolutely. If, if one is experiencing some sort of medical issues in their own life, the anxiety could be because of this, this medical problem that, that this person is already experiencing. So they definitely need to be speaking with their doctor about it. Trauma can be another reason. Of course, trauma can come in many different forms, but that can also lead to, to severe depression uh, if not treated by a professional. And also, I think that there's a lot of financial issues or possibility of loss of job, things like that that can really kind of put one on over the edge, so to speak, that you know, to seek professional help can really be beneficial at that point. So if you'd like more information on this or other topics, please go to lopa.org. Under our Family Services tab, we do have resources that addresses multiple issues that people may experience. All right. Thank you very much, Sally. You're welcome. As we do in every episode of The Gifted Life, we honor our hero. And this episode's hero is Evan Bunting. Evan's mother writes, In June of 2012, I received the call that no mother ever wants to receive. It was a hospital calling, telling me to come quickly. My only son was being rushed by ambulance to the hospital for severe injuries from a motorcycle accident. 
Unfortunately, God had a plan I wasn't prepared for. As Evan's mom, he was only 20, a month shy of his 21st birthday. Evan's brain was not functioning and was declared brain dead the following day. Gift of Life asked, would you consider donating his organs? The answer for me was absolutely. I couldn't imagine a day without Evan in it, but to have his heart continue beating, to have his eyes continue to see, would truly have him live on in others. My life truly changed at this point. Evan was a hero. Evan was a true blessing in so many unique ways. He lived every day to the absolute fullest and was the most kind, giving young man. His infectious smile, sense of humor, and let's have fun attitude touched everyone and made them laugh. He was always working on a project, whether it was a car, truck, motorcycle, mower, snowblower. If it had a motor, he was on it. His friends knew he was the go-to guy. Evan had two sisters that miss him every day. Jillian is two years older than Evan, and they were attached at the hip when they were little. They shared the same sense of humor. Crystal, who is seven years younger than Evan, looked up to her big brother, and he is deeply missed. And now we pause and say thank you to Evan for the gift of life. question and answer segment, we have a question from Facebook. And Joey, this one's for you. Is a cancer survivor allowed to be an organ donor? I am currently, but need to know if I need to remove the heart on my license since I had cancer in 2016. That's a great question. And my my first answer is don't remove your heart (laughs) from your license. Obviously, it changes with one cancer to another on time frames where it would be acceptable to transplant, you know, that person's organs. Obviously, if, if there's active cancer, that's a lot more challenging. But after treatments and after the cancer uh, has been eradicated for a period of time, then we reevaluate on a case-by-case basis. And oftentimes, we do recover and transplant and save others' lives from cancer survivors. Great information. Thank you. If you have a question, we want to hear from you. Reach out to us. Your story can inspire others to give the gift of life. Find us on social media, email us, or even call and leave a voicemail. Phone number is 504-648-3477. We look forward to hearing from you. Wow, another episode comes to an end, Sally. This was really very good. I really enjoyed hearing what Howard had to say. Yeah, he is such an inspiration doing this for 40 years and always thinking about what's next. You know, Mm -hmm. where can we create more innovation? Mm -hmm. And also, even though we didn't get a chance to talk with him about their family services program for the follow-up for donor families, they have an outstanding program and have for years. So that's something else that they're very good at doing, too. And something we didn't mention, but they are number one in the nation in lives saved from organ donation. Last year, just this past year, 565 organ donors that have transplanted 1,546 organs. That's amazing. That is amazing. Great work. You know, and then, of course, if you haven't already done so, register to be an organ donor at registerme.org. Go out and do something today that you wouldn't normally do to help make life happen. This 
is a production of the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency, or LOPA. The Gifted Life is hosted by Lori Steele, Joey Boudreaux, and Sally Gentry. Our producers are Kirsten Hines and Shalon Caraway. We are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Metairie, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez. Thank you.